You're listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them. We elicit expert advice from exit planners, attorneys, merger and acquisition experts, accountants, business appraisers, and financial advisors, all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition. This is Noah Rosenfarb with another of our Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcasts. We've got an interesting and unique guest today. Dan Abate runs Robation, and I hope I didn't mess that one up. (laughs) Robotathon. uh, Robotathon. There we go. So Robotathon is such an interesting company. Dan's got a real unique 21st century skill set that he's applied to businesses that both he's acquired and now he's offering it to business owners that want to implement automation in their business. He creates invisible robots that increase profitability and streamline business process. So the idea for today for you owners and advisors to owners is to get some ideas of how you might use automation in your business and uh, how it could increase your profit. So Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Sure, no problem. Thanks for having me, Noah. So take me back to when you started your career because you've had a long history in a a, a short life of uh, (laughs) acquiring businesses, making them more profitable, selling them for more money, and doing it again and again. So you you had mentioned to me you had a uh, metal stamping company that was in your family. So talk to me about that experience. How did did you get involved and what were you guys doing? Sure. Basically, um, I'm kind of the the, uh, stereotypical um, computer kid who, you know, uh, started messing around with uh, Commodore 64 when he was a nine years old sort of situation. Um, by the time I was 15, 16 years old, I was already, you know, uh, fairly versed in, you know, what's happening in the uh, with the internet at the time, which was, you know, in the mid 90s or so. So it was just kind of getting going. Um, you know, networking was becoming part of, you know, normal businesses were starting to starting to have to have to integrate um, these new technologies into the into their operations. And so my father's business, which was a metal stamping company, a manufacturing company, um, was right at that point. And so um, I was, of course, happy to volunteer to uh, start looking at their processes and figure out where we can kind of start to integrate um, just basic networking. Um, Just having computer terminals at various points in the process um, was kind of the first step in the process, in the goal, like the goal of the process. But we, um, but I wanted to take it one step further than that because I had already, um, like again, had kind of a, had this kind of vision of how kind of the internet was working, and I kind of saw the opportunity to have um, some custom software that I was developing to um, just streamline the whole process so that to kind of try to take um, all of the paper that they were walking around from department to department and just put that all on the network. Um, at the time, it was you know super revolutionary sort of thing. We got a bunch of good write-ups and stuff about just kind of how cool it was, you know, especially in the manufacturing world, which is was kind of an old-school business and people were kind of slow to adapt. Um, and so, yeah, we just, you know, I, I you know, implemented all of uh, um, our processes in that business, and that's what kind of really gave me the uh, 
the idea that um, you know you can really take manual processes and convert them to kind of a digital format. So tell me about that back in the mid-90s and uh, what was it that you were doing? Were you taking purchase orders and, and bill of materials? And That's exactly right. What, would, what we ultimately had, now of course it didn't start out all this way, but it was kind of a process over, you know, the, you know, the first major implementation only took six months, but then the process of revising was, you know, done over a couple of years. Um, by the time it was all said and done, we were to the point that the majority of our major customers were interfacing with us directly online, so they would actually, you know, we once we set up their order in the system, in terms of reordering, they would basically just go on and click on that they need to reorder. And at that point, that reorder would be immediately in our system. Our system would evaluate our current inventory. The inventory then would be, um, if they needed to place another order to one of our vendors, uh, it would, you know, send an email to our uh, purchasing person who would say, hey, you need to order because this other order just came in. Um, and it would just go through the whole process like that. So as it, you know, as it stopped at each stage, you know, the tool guys had like a little screen kind of similar to like the way McDonald's, you know, if you see the guys in the back working in the McDonald's, they've got their little, you know, orders. As the orders come up, they kind of see what they're supposed to be making. Same exact idea, just kind of on a bigger scale. Um, and that, that process continued all the way through till the, you know, final quality inspection was done. The quality guys would click, okay, this job has, you know, been checked. Everything looks good. And then it would move into the next phase. You know, it's shipped out so that then the, then, then the customer could also check on the status of their order at any time and see where it was in the process. Now, again, this is the mid-90s. So this sort of thing was a big, like, you know, even if that stuff's a big deal now. That's kind of what we're working on now to try to work with more businesses into processes like this. But, you know, 15 years ago, you know, going on 20 years now, I guess, um, that was unheard of. So the fact that so the customers would be able to check out their stuff, and then as soon as it was um, shipped out the door, the system would you know uh, post it for invoicing, and then the the in, you know the accounts uh, receivable people would just get a big list of okay these things are all out the door, print out these invoices and mail them out. So the process was the the people became. Um, I don't want to say secondary, partners uh, with the system as opposed to the people having to control the system, uh, which is a lot of times what people are, end up doing in, in their normal routine as part of their business is they have, you know, they use Excel, they use um, manual paper systems, and it's basically people using tools as opposed to it being one coherent system from start to finish. Yeah, and I think even over the 20 years, as you described, I mean, that system that you had 20 years ago is probably it's still in the upper quartile of how small manufacturing businesses would run today. Right, exactly. So, so then after you implemented the system or coincident with the system, you did some acquisitions? Why don't you tell yeah. me about that? Yeah. Um, you know, at the, again, this is the, the you know mid to late 90s that we're talking about. Um, obviously, uh, outsourcing was a big word. Uh, a lot of people you know, a lot of manufacturing was going overseas, first to Mexico, then to China. So there was a lot of consolidation going on in the industry. And now this is where I kind of learned. I was I was on the tech side. I understood the kind of how this tech processes thing was going to work. Um, but my experience with consolidation came from my 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 father, who at the time was consolidating smaller companies into our own. So we had a really efficient system in place. You know technology and just in terms of the business that we were running and had been running for many years. 
So it really so what we were doing is we would purchase um, smaller, mostly distressed companies because the companies were, you know, they'd lose major customers to you know overseas competition. They wouldn't have enough existing customers to cover their current overhead. Now remember, you know, you're talking about manufacturing here. It's really hard to scale down quickly, um, you know, when you've got you know. 100 people and 20 machines, you know, out on the floor or whatever, um, you know, you can't just turn that off. So when you lose a major customer, you're, you're, you know, you're in a tough spot. So uh, what we were doing was, you know, we'd find these guys, mostly just through word of mouth. It's a small, you know, it's a big industry, but it's a small world kind of thing. Um, and we would work with these guys, and we would work to roll them into our facility, um, pretty much eliminating all of their overhead in the process because we would just let them. And I'll give you, you know, some specific details. Um, it was all based on earnout uh, for the for any of these manufacturing deals, because the the companies themselves had a set of fixed assets which the which the uh, seller was more than able to just sell off. And so he would just liquidate everything that he has. It's a hard asset. So and he would keep all of that. Same thing with any receivables he still had. He would keep all of that. That was all for him. And we'd pay him a small amount, you know, fifty thousand, a hundred thousand, which we kind of thought of as like a goodwill signing bonus kind of thing to come over with us. And then we would just move all of his stuff, all of his work to us. And because we had a very flexible um, plant, we could do a lot of things. Um, we were able to move that stuff over for relatively no cost. Um, and so something that was, you know, a business that was unprofitable, uh, you know, standing by itself when it was rolled into the mix um, became extremely profitable. And then we would just pay the owner, you know, 5% for five years. So that would give him some motivation to continue to maintain uh, connections with his customers so that, you know, they stay with us and, and, and we continue to all benefit from from having them around. That's great. So. After you integrated, I guess it was four different acquisitions, mm -hmm. what prompted you guys to market your business for sale? Well, we had gotten to the point, we were in the same boat as everybody else. Um, we had, you know, we saw what was happening in the industry. You know, we saw that a lot of manufacturing was, was going away and wasn't going to be coming back anytime soon. Um, we had grown to be kind of a mid-sized uh, company, you know, through acquisitions and just through our general sales effort. And, you know, late, uh, you know, late 90s, early 2000, it just seemed to make sense. There were some bigger guys doing exactly what we were doing in terms of consolidations, you know, putting everybody under one roof. And um, it, that was pretty much it. It was kind of a looking forward into the, you know, out into the world and saying, do we want to continue in this industry and fight and get bigger and bigger and bigger? Or do we want to, you know, sell now and go try to do something else? Uh, my Again, my passion was more on the internet and process side, so I didn't have any particular attachment to the manufacturing world. My dad already was in his mid 50s, so he kind of was, you know, wouldn't have hurt his feelings to <laughs> kind of take it easy and do something a little different. So that was the decision. We just all, it just kind of, it just kind of made sense. And we, we in terms of selling the business, um, it actually, same thing, it was actually relatively easy. Um, we, we just put an ad, an anonymous ad in the um, Tool and Die Bulletin. 
in the Chicago area, um, and then just said, hey, you know, give a little rough outline of, you know, what we were and everything like that, not to give away too much to the public, of course. And we got a call from somebody, actually a guy based down in Florida. Um, he, you know, his his family had run a bunch of Ace Hardware stores. They all they own a whole bunch of Ace Hardware stores. They were doing this kind. Of, they decided to go into a different industry, holidaying, you know, these businesses, and they had a pretty big shop not too far from us in Chicago. And we, uh, yeah, it was kind of it was really kind of cool because it was sort of a handshake deal. You know, shook hands. Uh, you know, they walked through, shook hands. Everything looked like it matched up, and uh, and that was it. And and so did you feel like you got a premium for the systems you had built? Were they going to be able to take over that, you know, computerized system, or did they have their own thing going on and they just wanted your? Actually, that's a very interesting question on how that how that worked out. Um, no, they they do they did not take the systems that we had in place because they were doing the same thing we were. They were just hacking everything out and taking the customers over to their facility. Um, I this is an example, and this is still something that we deal with today, like even 20 years later, or going on 20 years later, um, 15 years later, I guess, um, is that the owner, a uh, very nice guy, very experienced individual, had lots and lots of, uh, done lots and lots of different things in his life, um, was very resistant to the idea of implementing these changes across their system in their their facility, because um, that's what I offered to do. Of course, I was like, "Hey, you know, this has worked really well for us. You can see it in action here. We should do this for you too." Because they were still running kind of the old paper system. You know, a job would come in via fax, maybe, uh, and then that fax would be, you know, manually transcribed into some sort of other um, format, which then would be kind of carried around on these little plastic. Uh, you know, sleeves, you know, throughout the, you know, across the shop floor until the product came out the other side. And, you know, it was all completely separate and manual. Um, and of course, I wanted to change that. And, and you know, again, very nice guy, uh, but wasn't in his frame of reference, you know. And again, because a lot of what we were doing, even at that point, was still relatively um, new and wasn't kind of talked about in the mainstream world. He just, you know, wasn't that excited about it. And so we never, we actually never did implement anything with him beyond that. That's interesting because I would think there's a lot of resistance among owners to automation because they've got something that works and the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. So. Sure. How, well, that, how, how, how have you been able to fight that resistance perhaps in some of the other businesses or with other owners that you talked to? Well, what we've done in the past is, just, I mean, obviously um, – you know, I hate to say it, but a lot of times um, age has a lot to do with it. Um, even if people don't understand it, if they're if they happen to skew a little bit younger, they at least understand the potential of it and how it can work. Another thing that's that is a kind of a resisting um, factor, as it were, that causes people to resist is um, their connection to their labor base, because when we do this stuff. Processes change, you know, people and, you know, sometimes people and departments become obsolete and they're no longer necessary. And that's the whole point. The whole point is increase efficiency, increase profitability, all that sort of stuff. Um, but in that process, you know, people that maybe worked 
with this company for many years may not have anything to do in the company anymore. Um, and if you know you're an owner and you're really you know tight on the day-to-day processes, um, that can be tricky. Sometimes sometimes emotions play more into it than just kind of the logic and the you know the uh, kind of importance of running a really efficient business. Um, I think that was a little bit what was going on uh, in the case of the guys that bought us. It was the same sort of thing. You know, these guys had guys that worked for them and for this company for a long time, and they didn't really want to rock the boat on that. So it is a it is a challenge sometimes to to get people to see it and to and to overcome some of these other things that are really completely not operations based and are more just kind of an emotional connection to the business. So all while you're running into this, uh, you know, stamping business on the side, you've got an internet company going. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. I was, uh, uh, while I was doing all the, the, the stamping stuff, um, I was involved in the whole, you know, late nineties internet thing. Um, I started a small, um, Basically, just a joke site, if you believe it or not. Like, like I was just posting jokes, and I was asking other people to post jokes. And now, you know, so that was kind of the first, the beginning of it. And again, thinking back to the '90s, you have to remember that's how it was. There were like specific sites that did different things, and this one was a joke site. So we started to generate traffic, and at the time, the uh, the kind of the big you know, NASDAQ type companies, internet companies, the ones that were getting the hundreds of millions of dollars in investment, um, had to show their stockholders something. They had to show that they were doing something. Um, so they would create whatever their product was, and then they'd have to get traffic across it because, you know, everyone knows that, you know, you can make the prettiest website in the world and the best website in the world, but if no one's on it, no one uses it, it's obviously not worth anything. So these guys, you know, the big NASDAQ guys had a real motivation to make sure they got traffic. So what, you know, I realized was that um, there was a definite market for anybody who could supply them with traffic. And they didn't really care, you know, where this traffic was coming from. They just needed to show people coming across their site constantly. You know, it was kind of a, you know, uh, a performance kind of advertising for them. They want to make sure that they pay and then they get somebody on the site. Um, so that's what I what I based my next you know that internet business around, which was acquiring other small uh, businesses, uh, some that had just a few employees or maybe even a one man show, um, that were already getting a lot of traffic, and then integrate them into one. Um, system on the back end, so it was all run off of one server. We didn't have to increase any of our, um, you know, payroll or or labor in, in so associated with running these businesses, um, and, and it would just kind of create a big, massive amount of traffic. I mean, kind of at the top, um, our best, you know, we were doing about a hundred thousand to one hundred fifty thousand unique people per day across our network of websites, which by internet terms isn't huge. Uh, but it was sufficient enough to kind of create a nice business and um, some good cash flow from these guys that were buying that traffic. Um, and it was, yeah, it was just a really, it was a really interesting time to be involved. So you did some acquisitions on the site, site acquisitions to get more internet traffic. Why don't you tell our listeners about those deals? How did you find them? How did you acquire them? Sure. Um, well, at the time, uh, again, and actually it's still like this, you know, there were people that were that were just building websites, creating a small amount of traffic and then selling it on. And I don't mean, when I say small, it might be 10,000 a day, 20,000, you know, unique per day, something like that. Um, 
and uh, let's see that I, the most of the ones that I was involved in that were the what that I acquired um, were all somehow a, a weird direct connection. Like I don't think I ever went to any like listing sites or anything and bought anything. All, all the guys that I connected to were kind of like you know acquaintance of acquaintance of acquaintance kind of relationships, um, and they were all cash deals. Um, you know, unlike the earnouts in the manufacturing business on the internet side, there are no hard assets. You know, all you're really buying is the is the name. Like that's pretty much it. You're buying a domain name, which already has all the links and stuff to it. So, uh, you know, we just paid. We ended up paying cash for all of the businesses, and again, prices were inflated at the time. You know, you're you're paying. Oh geez, I don't know. Some of them were, you know, ten, twenty, you know, close to somewhere between ten and twenty times cash flow on some of these, um, because that's what the whole market was at the time. Um, and you know, we'd buy them, integrate them into our processes, which would increase our size and then increase our valuation. Yeah, and and so what prompted you to sell that business? Um, good timing, and it was only kind of an accident that it was good timing. Um, you know, late 90s, uh, I was, you know, we had gotten to a point where we were big enough that we were starting to attract some, you know, attention from some bigger guys. I had known somebody, again, through kind of a, um, just kind of an industry connection, uh, who had just gotten a bunch of money from some venture capital guys to kind of continue to grow his business. So he was just moving into some acquisitions, like you know, bigger acquisitions. Um, he had some money to spend, and so he offered me something, and I was like, "Okay, I'll give it a shot." And, you know, I'll sure. You know, at some point you got to cash out, I guess, is kind of my thought. And then I was actually planning on taking that money and then doing it again and continuing to build, you know, in a new direction. But luckily for me, um, I, he bought me out, and then six months later was the big kind of dot-com bust. Um, so I was all cashed out at that point, which really was obviously you know pure luck, but it was the right thing, right position to be in. Um, so yeah, it, honestly, it was just you know taking the opportunity that, that somebody offered me just kind of randomly. Uh, it's it's better to be lucky than good sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> I have another story about that too, uh, as we move on here through the uh, through my timeline. <laughs> so so you sold that business in '99, and then you sold the stamping business in 2001. Is that right? That is correct. Yep. So uh, after after those two things were out and about, what were you working on? At that point, I was pretty much in the kind of I was doing startup stuff. Uh, with a focus in real estate, you know, see, look how I follow one, <laughs> follow one bubble to the next, I guess is the way to look at it. Um, yeah, early, um, let's see, early 2000, 2002, whatever it was, um, looking for something to do. Obviously, I had a little bit of money, you know, put together from these various things that we had already done. Um and uh, purchased some buildings, uh, or a building, let's start with that one, purchased a building down in downtown Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, of all places, long story on why it was down there. Um, They're doing this whole downtown revitalization thing. It was going to, you know, part of this whole thing that they were doing. Um, Developed that into live entertainment venues, comedy, comedy venues. Um, 
and then and started a business and then kind of in the process of running that as a startup um, the idea being that we if we can make this work and because the real estate at the time you know mid 2000s was increasing uh, if we can make this work we can create a network of these venues uh, and that's actually what we did I, you know, going back to the software side of things again uh, a lot of times the difficulty that these types of venues have is this just management and organization um, you know you at each location there's not a lot of economies of scale that come with entertainment venues you know because in each entertainment venue you have to have a duplicate staff um, so we looked at it and we're like okay if we're going to do this again with a focus on trying to create value in the real estate and the business is really kind of ancillary to just paying for the real estate so that you know hopefully the real estate will go up um, created uh, custom software from scratch same sort of thing now internet completely 100% internet based uh, so we were able to keep track of what's happening at that particular venue from anywhere in the world which again was kind of starting to be kind of a new concept um, and it started this you know this software that was that would manage everything from ticket sales to um, show scheduling to uh, the producers were able to log in on their own and schedule their own rehearsals or any time that they needed in the space. Uh, you know, it was just kind of automating the entire process of running this business. And in the process of doing that, basically took a, a venue business, which generally, you know, maybe had five or six people at each venue and boiled it down to a one-man show at each venue. Now, we had a kind of a corporate side, which kind of oversaw everything. Um, but because of the software, um, you know, it, it, one person could conceivably run, run, can conceivably run one building. Uh, and then once we realized that, we were like, okay, now we're good to go. We've got a profitable business. We've got a, um, a piece of real estate that's uh, increasing in value. Let's do it again. So then we went to Chicago, 2006, um, which I knew was a you know much bigger you know comedy town, uh, and then did it again. And, and then the thing that was really interesting about it was the Albuquerque uh, project. Obviously, we were just starting from scratch, so it took a little while to develop the software and get everything worked out. The Chicago building, we had purchased, had done the construction, and you know turning getting the software to work in that location took literally 10 minutes because we had already you know had everything all set up already uh to run multiple locations uh so we then you know at that point you could you know we could just jump from from property to property and continue to increase um our our assets basically by holding all of this real estate and that was 2006 so we did see a downturn you know shortly thereafter in the real estate market which you know then it was kind of like well why do it you know we, the, the businesses make money on their own but without the component of the real estate you know it's it doesn't look like the business that I want to do, you know, 20 other buildings at this point. You know what I mean? So, um, so do you guys license that software to other comedy venues or, or is it still proprietary? Actually, as part of our um, business model going forward after kind of changing, you know, with the environment, the real estate environment, um, we're actually licensing it out to independent owner operators who want to run. Uh, it's not really a franchise because my, my attorney says that's a different technical legal thing but it's an independent owner operator so basically they take our entire business model the use of the software which of course is you know key to the whole business um, and then they actually take ownership of the property and then we just get a royalty um, off of their use of the software so yeah to answer your question yes that's something that 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 business is pursuing that's great they I think nowadays they call that pivoting in your business right, <laughs> right. <laughs> 
So, uh, so when you were acquiring venues, were you acquiring existing comedy locations, or you were just acquiring a space and converting it into a comedy venue? Yeah, we were. That's exactly right. We were purchasing um, buildings that had been. Um, empty and you know so we can buy them as cheap as possible and then we would you know put the money into them do all the construction and the other thing to mention too is when you're doing venues um there's a lot of you know code issues safety you know life safety stuff you got to deal with um so it's not cheap to make these conversions but that's kind of a good um a, a good position to be in because if you are doing something that isn't cheap then um it also keeps others from just jumping in and doing the same thing really you know easily so it's a, a barrier to entry um for for competition so um so yeah we would actually do the whole process of construction and and get them up and running interesting so uh what's happened to you in that business and your role in the licensing of the software do you have to do updates do you do you have to manage that robot <laughs> You know, I don't actually. Um, what's what? You know, we do we do in upgrades. You know, we we do do updates when things come up. Um, the users will send us, you know, requests like, "Hey, it would be great if it does this, or it would be great if it does that," um, and then we'll make those changes um, periodically. About every six months or so, we'll go through and we'll we'll do some additions and change things and that sort of stuff. Um, but for the most part, we you know we, you know we're running a few million dollars through that system um, and don't really you know on a day to day basis don't really do anything with it. You know it all just kind of manages itself and then the individual users kind of come in and and provide it with whatever inputs it needs from 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 people. So. Pretty cool. So for your, for your licensees, have you been able to you know get some data from them to figure out how much more money do they make now that they have your online? Automated? Yeah. Well, they the, it's you know it's pretty straightforward because um, you know the more money that they make is really just based on that they don't need any staff. Like the, like the owner in our case, you know the, the venues that we're running right now uh, or that we're working with, you know they're small venues. They're they're people that probably only had you know, four or five people on staff to begin with. And now it's literally a one man show. Um, that's just, uh, the, you know, basically the owner, or maybe one, if the owner's absentee, maybe one manager person who handles the whole, you know, the whole daily operations of the business, which that, you know, so just multiply it out. You know, if you've, instead of four or five people, you only have one, you know, each of those four people that you eliminated probably were getting, you know, 30 to $50,000 a year. So software is basically saving them 200 grand a year, something like that. If you want to look at it that way. That's great. So, uh, so then take me into now and in the work you're doing now with helping other business owners automate their companies. Sure. How did you come up with that idea and where, where are you at? Well, here's the, the thing that we found with all of this is that the, the major value that I can, that I personally uh, bring to companies and that I enjoy, like which is my passion, um, is, is all of this software stuff and this process stuff, looking at companies and figuring out how to, you know, how to improve them and how to, and how to simplify it. I mean, you know, things are so complicated uh, in life in general. It's just, you know, it's so much better if you can have, a, have an automated business versus a business that you have to actively manage all the time. Um, so in that process, we were like, okay, so how can I, 
projects? How can I do this more? You know, up to this point, I've been doing my own acquisitions. I've been, you know, doing my own startups. I've been doing all this stuff kind of on my own. So my time was limited. So how do I, you know, do with the most of what I really like to do, which also creates the most value for companies? That was the question that I asked. And the way to do that um, was Robotaton, as we talked about earlier. Robotaton is a company um, that rather than me making you know purchasing companies or starting up companies but it allows me to invest directly into other people's companies so that I can bring these same processes to uh, to their companies and create these huge savings that I would have if I was to purchase the company or if I was to start the company so maybe we could segment the market because when I think about the type of implementation that you do, you know, I could see a lean manufacturing, at, you know, different $50 million manufacturers, whether they're based here or overseas or, mm-hmm. you know, large companies that fully automate their systems because they understand that they can invest a million dollars in software and, you know, buy a fully integrated off-the-shelf package and then customize it to their unique business. Sure. What is it that you're doing in kind of the small and medium-sized business market? How sure. is it different, or how how are you able to apply something that you know, from my perspective, hasn't been able to be applied to a three million dollar, five million dollar company? Right. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Yeah, you're right. The, the big guys actually have, um, you know, they have whole departments and they have you know huge dollars to spend on consultants and stuff to make all that sort of stuff happen. Um, we basically bring economies of scale to the smaller businesses, to the you know the 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 few million dollars or just you know tens of million dollar type size businesses. Um, by uh, we have all the expertise, we have all we have financing in place, we have our our own money um, to invest into these businesses so that they don't have to come up with the with the cash. Honestly, like that's a big that's a you know we we talk to a lot of businesses and that's usually the second biggest uh hurdle in an automated in an auto, to to put to put automation in place which is um well geez i don't have three four hundred thousand dollars to spend like it'd be great i know that i'm gonna you know i know that i'm going to be able to to save that much the first year but i still got to come up with it you know now in order to do that um so we kind of take that out of the equation because we're putting our money in directly into the business and then that the money comes back out after savings are realized um and of course the second you know the first major hurdle of course is just ideological um that people have to be ready and willing to make that change in their business that is going to you know severely um you know, in a positive way, severely change the structure of the way that their company operates, um, and that you know that's going to result in um, cutting of overhead. So, it, what's interesting to me is that we're not just talking about manufacturing. I know that's how you got started, mm-hmm. but you know, you're applying it to essentially uh, you know ticket sales and, uh, yes. and internet companies. And so, wh- who who can this apply to, and how would somebody know if automation might be right for their? That's business? that's a great question. Yes, the, that's the thing to to recognize when we talk about automation and robots and all that sort of stuff. People do think of the you know car manufacturers or various types of manufacturers, but that's not only what we're talking about anymore. That's the way the 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 technology is going and our ability to, to utilize it today. We don't have to wait 10 years from now. This is happening now and it's been happening for you know the past 10, 15 years as well. Um, 
any type of business, all, all businesses have a back-end component. They all are invoicing. They all have accounting. They all have scheduling. They all have you know, various components in their processes that are very universal. Um, and in that universality, if that's a word, uh, that's, where we, that's where we fit in. Because we can look at a company and we can say, okay, you've got, you know, six departments from, the, you know, the, 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 the placing of an order and the, the, the order goes through six different departments before an invoice is generated at the other end. How can we take as many hands off of that as possible uh, so that at the other end, um, you know, there's, there's just, there's not, there doesn't have to be that human component in there anymore. Moving that, you know, that, that communication, increasing the ability for processes to communicate between each other is what we do, and I'll explain what that is. The way that most companies operate is they use Excel spreadsheets, um, a lot of Excel spreadsheets, um, or other custom, or not custom, but um, off-the-shelf systems that are supposed to do something specific for them. For example, QuickBooks. QuickBooks is an accounting package um, that works very well in terms of accounting, uh, you know, invoicing, POs, that sort of stuff. But it doesn't talk to any other part of your business. So at some point, you have to have a person or two people or three people or a whole bunch of people that are kind of reconciling whatever is happening in the real world down into your accounting package and then back out again. And so what we do is, is we just utilize one single system so that you don't have to make that, uh, that leap between processes. You don't have to change it from, you know, paper out, you know, in, on, the, on the retail floor. You know, it's, maybe it's a paper system. The guy's just writing something on a notepad, make, taking orders, whatever. You don't have to transfer that from, you know, into an Excel spreadsheet, which then does all of your, you know, kind of inventory and what you need to buy to keep the shop filled. And then, you know, transfer that into your accounting system, which generates all the other, you know, invoices and stuff. That's all takes people in between there doing all those things. What we do is just convert, take all of those processes and mush it down into one system. And then a smart system, too, not just a system that's keeping records, but a system that can try to predict and adapt to whatever is actually happening. And when it has all of the information available to it, you can do that. You know, when you have a system that you know, is able to watch the process of a sale from end to end, it can start to make very smart decisions um, because it has all of the different steps completely available to it all the time. Now, when you have standalone systems, you know, obviously you can't do that because it doesn't know, uh, you know, what's happening at the end of the line. Uh, it only knows what's happening right in front of it. So if, if I just kind of name some systems, maybe you could tell me if they all get smushed into the one integrated system. Like, are you talking about, hey, my CRM system, my email system, my, uh, you know, accounts receivable, my accounts payable, like on the accounting side, my mm -hmm. purchase order, my bill of lading, my bill of materials, whatever it is within my business, all these different systems that I'm running, right. you're customizing a, a, a software program, which you refer to as a robot mm -hmm. as one integrated system? That is correct. That's the goal. The, the goal whenever we look at a company is to try to is try to squish everything into one system that's managed by one system. So instead of people utilizing tools to implement all of those processes, 
um, the system itself is actually administering all of that, and the people only have to come in when the system gets confused by something or it gets a you know some something doesn't make sense that in terms of you know the standard day to day process. So when when you do this, are you, and let's use an example of a company that has you know Salesforce on the CRM side, they mm-hmm. use you know QuickBooks on the on the back end, or mm-hmm. they have uh, you know some Microsoft uh, software programs that they're running, and maybe they've got you know an AS four hundred that does a bunch of their order entry and and sure. you know whatever else. Do you integrate them with an overlay, or do you eliminate them with something new? It depends on the specific instance. Most of the time, it's going to be something new because all those packages that are proprietary that you're describing specifically don't have an open component to them, meaning that they don't have a way of getting information in and out of them uh, very easily, so you can't hook them up to a robot um, as much as you can with something that's more open base open source basically um there's kind of a funny story about that asking about that proprietary uh and then integrating new products or new parts um the department of defense just i don't know two or three months ago something like that issued a new initiative um that they figure is going to save them 15 20 billion dollars a year in new product because they're basically pushing all their um vendors, the people that are selling them all this equipment, uh, to start to go into an open architecture, uh, open architecture systems, which basically means that um, they can't create systems that are closed and, um, you know, overly proprietary. All the little parts in the middle can be proprietary, but on both ends, they have to have uh, openings so that, you know, those parts can be easily upgraded or easily, you know, so the whole system becomes modular at that point. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about, is that when you have these closed proprietary processes within the business that can't, there's no way to make them communicate with each other. I mean, there is. There's there's things you can do if, like, you something is really working well and you want to somehow, it, it can be done, but the ideal situation is is that all those processes get replaced with a with a new custom uh, system that will then allow the, the the business processes to run seamlessly from start to finish. So who doesn't this work for? I mean, have you have you kind of been able to define you know doctors, lawyers, and accountants, architects, and engineers? You know, sorry guys, you're yeah. out. Well, it's it's a you know it depends on what parts of their business you're talking about um, it, because sometimes it doesn't. There's, you're right. There's certain parts like let's take a restaurant for example. That's a, a very lay, like layman type example. Um, a restaurant. You, at this moment in time, from a technology perspective, you're not going to replace the waitresses at the restaurant. You know the people that are the waiters that are at the restaurant. You're not going to replace them um, because we don't have giant mechanical robots that can walk around and carry the food. That's like not going to happen. Not now. You know, 20 years from now, who knows? But not now. But that said, if it's a restaurant that has a purchase order person that he, you know that's or a, a purchasing person or department that's making a lot of you know back office type operations, 
uh, if they, you know, if they've got a, a big accounts payable, maybe they're doing a lot of corporate stuff, so maybe they got a big accounts receivable. Um, depending on the business, it might, it's not really by industry; it's more based on what their back end office operations look like. You know, if you're a small mom and pop restaurant, you know, where the owner is buying and selling all the inventory and, you know, is kind of just running everything. Yeah, there's probably not a lot we can do for them. But if you're, you know, a five, six, uh, you know, chain type, you know, local chain type restaurant that has some, you know, efficient or kind of back end sort of operations, they're a real potential because at that point, you know, you've got a lot of data potentially coming in from multiple locations uh, that can be all consolidated into one, you know, process in the back end. And then all of, you know, all of the ordering and all of the stuff that goes along with that can be done through our system. So it's really not by industry. It's more about the specific circumstance of that company. So, so if an owner has payroll, I guess it's essentially the payroll of back office administrators is what right. software helps to eliminate. Is that a yep, good way to I, that's probably the best way to, to to sum it up. If you've got a, if you've got back office administrative labor, um, that's kind of where the that's kind of the sweet spot for. And then, of course, you have to also think about all of the um, side costs of that. You know, we're not just talking about the administrative labor uh, by itself, but you're talking about, you know, um, payroll taxes, insurance, um, overhead in terms of, um, you know, offices and, you know, computer equipment and uh, phone lines and all that. Once you start to, you know, shake out that administrative labor cost, you also get these fringe, you know, ancillary benefits as well, which also add up pretty quickly. Yeah. And so uh, have you kind of defined what that headcount or payroll size needs to look like in order for automation to make sense? Yeah, it's, it depends on how complicated of a system you're installing. You know, if it's a fairly simple system, you know, maybe you really only need to eliminate, you know, uh, one per, one or two people maybe, you know, that, that then it maybe makes sense financially. Um, if it's a big system, then obviously you need to see more benefit. Um, for the most part, if you're really, you know, if you're a smaller company, uh, you know, with two or three maybe people on the back end administering stuff, that probably would work because usually the back end, especially back ends that are running kind of manual processes, um, it usually commiserates well with, you know, the size of the company. So uh, because that seems that ratio is kind of the same, you know, as the volume goes up, you know, that, that cost of running a manual system goes up as well. Uh, it usually kind of works out uh, that we can usually figure out something to do with these companies. So our audience is, is basically split, not quite down the middle, between advisors to owners and owners that are listening. So maybe mm-hmm. you could talk to each group somewhat separately. You know, if, if you're an advisor to owners and you're looking to create more value in your business and, and clearly software automation, if it's reducing payroll, it's going to increase profits, which is going to increase value. Uh, right. How would they identify an opportunity for you and get in touch with you? And then maybe we could talk to owners, and I don't know if the, the message is any different. Sure. It's the it's it's probably fairly similar for both, depending on what they're – I guess from the advisor's perspective, um, you know, they're, they're – their goal would be, you know, increasing valuation. Like that would be, I would assume that there would be their goal. So the important thing to realize is that um, this doesn't cost anybody anything uh, for us to uh, evaluate and then even invest in these companies. So uh, if they think that there's a back off, there's a potential to eliminate these back office stuff from, from what we've talked about, um, 
contact us, you know, talk to us. Like we are, we're, we're still making purchases and acquisitions on our own utilizing the same concept. So we're looking at companies every single day. Um, you know, let us look at it. Let us see what, you know, what it's all about. The other th- kind of a third big component to people um, not implementing these types of, you know, uh, automation solutions is that they just don't even know what's available. So I, I don't, I, I don't want to leave it up to people to decide like, Oh, this business, Oh, you know, isn't going to work for that. Forget it. Cause it very well might, you know, when we get to take a look at it and we, we know everything that's out there current technology wise, we know what we're capable of. We have lots and lots of contacts all across the world um, that also have particular skill sets, to, you know, to, to, create these solutions. So the best thing to do is, is let us look at it. Um, there's, again, you know, there's no cost for us, for, for us to look at stuff. We like looking at stuff. We like talking to people. Um, so that's what, that would be my suggestion. If you've got that, you know, sweet spot of, you know, back office labor, there might be a real potential of, uh, of some savings. And then from the owner's perspective, <laughs> sort of the same thing, you know, let us help, let us take a look at it sort of thing. But the thing for the owner that they have to realize is that if they're, they want to run a business, because I'm, I'm an owner, I've owned businesses and done a lot of different things. And frankly, um, running a business can be a real pain in the butt. Uh, and it's really nice when you are able to implement a uh, robotic software or hardware or a combination of both solution to make your business more sim- like sim- more simple to run um, so that you're not having to contend with um, kind of the unknown elements that sometimes humans play into your daily processes. Um, you know, once you have your system in place and it's running and working for you, um, you know exactly what it's going to do. And so that's the real advantage to the owners that it's, ex- you know, it's extremely 100% predictable at that point, um, you know, short of, you know, you know, lightning strikes and other crazy, you know, happenstance sort of situations, um, you know, you know exactly what your business is going to do on a daily basis. So uh, if a, if an owner is, you know, two or three years out from when they intend to sell their business, mm-hmm. can automation still be right for them? Is there enough time? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would. In fact, that would probably be the best time because just, you know, from my experience buying and selling businesses, um, you know, people are going to want to see two to three years, you know, uh, cash flow and tax returns and all that sort of stuff. So it's it, that's probably the best time to like implement these things, so that you can show, um, you know, in a documented sense, how much money you're actually making uh, from these solutions, and um, and it's also a good selling point for your business. You know, uh, when you come to some, you know, if somebody's looking to buy a business for themselves uh, to operate or even as an absentee for that matter, um, you know, you're going to want you know, these these buyers, you know, they want to see a business that's simple to run and nobody wants a headache business. So if we can help make that, you know, make your business easier to run, um, it just it increases the marketability, uh, you know, aside from just the valuation of it, it, it just makes it a more attractive prospect. Yeah. So great. So if our listeners have an interest in talking with you, either, you know, about their own business or a client's business, what's the best way to get in touch? Um, best way to get in touch with me uh, is uh, via email. Uh, my email is dan at roboticon.com. And of course, that's our website, roboticon, R-O-B-O-T-A-T-O-N.com. 
Great. And all that information is available on the Divestopedia website. For those of you that listen to us on iTunes, please take the time to give us your feedback. If you uh, visit us on the web at Divestopedia, there's a, a link to leave us your comments. And certainly you could email me, Noah, at freedomadv.com. I'd welcome to hear from you. Uh, thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you on another episode. Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.